and uh, it was good. I sure like that hallelujah for the cross. What a wonderful song that is. And uh, there you go, Miss Deanna. We're learning some new songs, so you can put them on your list. Amen. Sister Deanna's like, I don't know what we know. I said, well, we'll we can fix that. We'll just start singing them all. Amen. Amen. And uh, my song leaders are like, it's all right. You, you'll get used to it. I need Dave and Dave and Junior. Not Junior. Come on up here. Hand these uh, notes out. I didn't give you any blanks today because I, I really like you to hopefully focus on what we're saying. There were some questions uh, at, uh, here around. Can you answer one of them tonight? Um, as I complete my study on them. Uh, one of the questions, Mike, is, uh, was a question. I thought it was an interesting one I hadn't heard posed before. But why did Jesus come as a man and die on the cross as a man? And yet in Revelation chapter 4, or chapter, yeah, chapter 4, I don't have the microphone, so I've got this. All right, so if you want me to have a microphone, you can run one down to me. All right. Why is he demonstrated as a lamb? And uh, so I'm going to answer that in two parts. I think first you see Jesus as a man because it required the death of a man, right, to pay for the sins. Uh, let's go to Romans, right? Romans chapter 5, Paul explains here, he says 4 in verse 10, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world so death passed uh, and, and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned for until the law sin was in the world but sin was not imputed when there is no law nevertheless death reigned from adam to moses so even though they didn't have the law death still reigned right death uh, sin still brought death even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of adam's transgression all right so Right here, Adam, right? He disobeyed God directly. And, and those that sinned in other ways, didn't sin after Adam's transgression, still died. Right? Uh, who is the figure of him, and this is important, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if, and he explains that statement this way, for if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath what abounded unto many. So by one man, right, sin and death came upon all the world. So God's grace and the gift of grace abounds through one man. All right. In similar fashion. Verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses Unto justification. So what's he saying there? He said, one offense, one sin led to death. One death led to the forgiveness of many offenses, many sins. And so we see that in Philippians chapter 2. The Bible describes the coming of Christ. And that he came, was made in the likeness of man. And uh, for sinful man, right? And so we see Christ, the first fruit of, of the saved. And so that's why I believe he came as a man, died as a man. Uh, as he describes there in Romans 5. You say, well, then why is he portrayed as a lamb? Um, I believe, and here's the best explanation I could find and I could come up with, and so you may have a better one, 
Uh, I'd love to hear it after the service if you'd like to share that. Uh, so there in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he, so the Bible says, uh, I stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, and are the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. To the Jewish people, and really when you start in chapter 4 of Revelation and you study the book, the pictures of Jesus Christ are given in that Jewish realm because it is really dealing with the Jewish people. And so in this, right, Christ is portrayed in a very familiar way to the Jewish reader. He's portrayed as a what? A lamb, right? To the Gentile, that didn't have any significance. But to the Jew, it certainly did because it was, right, the death of a lamb that was required to atone for the sins of the people. And we see, of course, starting from the very time of Cain and Abel, all throughout, right, the Old Testament, even when John, Jesus appears, John chapter 2, uh, how does John recognize Jesus to the Jewish disciples? Anybody know? Behold the, the what? The Lamb of God, which taken away the sin of the world. So the, the, the reason I believe Revelation chapter 5 portrays Jesus Christ as a lamb is because the audience, the, right, the, the imagery of Christ from chapter 4 on really is that of right, speaking to the Jewish mind, the Jewish reader, and uh, very reminiscent of the Old Testament. And so you say, well, I don't know that I agree with that. That's all right. Um, I don't know if I agree with it either, but that's the best explanation I could come up with. And if you have additional questions, I'll, I'll have a couple more that I'll, I'll, I'll deal with next week. But uh, if you have a questions, please write them down, text them to me. I'll do my best to find the answer. If I don't know, I'll just tell you that. This one, that's the best answer. I'm not, I'm not quite convinced of it myself, but uh, it's the best answer I could come up with. And if you have a different take, I'd love to hear. All right, we're going to go and we're actually going to be looking. We're going to depart from the book of Revelation because we need to set the groundwork for what we're about to start reading and start studying in chapter 6. So we're going to be looking at how many did, got a chance to do some of their homework. Outlining Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Anybody get a chance to do that? Or even attempt to do it or try to do it? All right, Miss Teresa did. Miss Deesdale. Anybody else? All right. Did anyone find anything unique or something that stood out to you as you outlined those scriptures? Teresa, did you find anything? Or Miss Teesdale? Or it just maybe you read it this week. Go sure we'll get through to week 69 we'll we'll look at the gap and we'll look at week 70 next wednesday all right so this is a two-part study um i've been saying this and i'm going to say it again just because i think it's vital that you get into your bible and you study it for yourself and you may not come to the same conclusions there are many many good people who disagree uh, i i challenge you well i don't know but you may have better things to do but go and read the commentaries on uh on Daniel chapter 9. If you want to find a portion of scripture that is uh, quite literally up in the air with most people, it's this particular passage, uh, especially the last four verses. And so um, I can fully appreciate and understand where people come to different conclusions, 
And you might tonight come away saying, you know what, I don't see it that way, Pastor. And I would love to hear your reasons why. Um, you may be right, and I may be wrong. That uh, won't be the first time. It certainly won't be the last time. Uh, but um, let's, let's take a look at the outline of chapter 9 itself, all right? And we're going we're gonna to look at it. Really, the chapter is broken up into three main sections. Number, uh, cha- the first part is Daniel's prayer, and we'll look at that here in a moment. We see as well Daniel is given a gift. He is, right, receives this gift of a vision from uh, Gabriel, from a messenger of God. And then we see Daniel's vision, which is what Teresa was referring to, and we can break that into, I think, four different sections. And so I don't have a PowerPoint tonight, so I hope you'll, you'll hang on to your seats as we, we walk through this. So <clears throat> when we look at the book of Daniel, so we're in Daniel chapter 9. We're also going to go to Matthew chapter 24 tonight. The book of Daniel can be broken up into sections itself, even if we pull up a little further. Daniel chapter 1 through 6 is very historical. It's, uh, it deals with Daniel's right interpretation of the dreams, the, the fiery furnace, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, and his admission that right there is a God in heaven who has humbled him. Uh, we see the fall of Babylon as well in chapters 1 through 6, and then the lion's den. That all appears to be right consecutive. It appears to be a timeline. Now we come to chapter 7, and at the end of the book, we find prophecies. Um, it's interesting, when you look at Daniel as a Bible, uh, uh, in, in, as it was written, uh, most of the manuscripts that we found for Daniel chapter 2 through 7 were actually written in Aramaic, which was the language, the common language of that time. It almost gives the idea that chapters 2 through 7 were really written right, with a focus on the Gentile reader. Uh, I'm not going to hold to that, build any doctrines off of it. But I think that's interesting that that particular portion of Scripture was written in Aramaic. Aramaic being, right, the common language, right, until, uh, until you get to Greek, you know, the Greek language. And even then was still pretty predominant. And so we come to chapter 6 through 12. And then we really, we, we come into these prophecies. Now, what you've got to be careful with is 6 through 12 are not consecutive. It's not in order. And you could generally put those chapters or chapter 7 through 12, those chapters within, right, chapters 1 through 6. So we have the prophecies of the times of the Gentiles, the ram and the goat, the 70 weeks, but it's not in a chronological order. And so when we come to Daniel chapter 9, you say, why would we come here? Why do we care about the 70 weeks? Because Jesus cared about it. And let me show you why I believe that. Let's go to Matthew 24. I'm going to have some help here today. Matthew 24, Jesus, there are three uh, parallel passages that we find. Matthew 24 and 25, we find in Mark 13 and in Luke chapter 21. And Jesus gives a personal briefing, uh, a, a, a one-on-one, or really one-on-four session, of uh, what, and he answers some really difficult questions for a group of four disciples. The, the book of Mark uh, tells us who they were. It was Peter, James, John, and ne- always last but uh, never too late, Andrew, my namesake, all right? So you got Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Many think this was given at the Mount of Olives. Uh, it was part of maybe the Olivet Discourse, but uh, just given to those four disciples. Uh, but it is an important passage of Scripture, uh, so important that three of the writers of the Synoptic Gospels felt that they, the Holy Spirit led them to include it in their Gospels. Now, Matthew is very verbose. Uh, one writer put it this way, Matthew, being a customs agent or a tax collector, probably had to learn how to write shorthand. And so I'm guessing that he took copious notes. That's just conjecture, thought on my part. 
But uh, Ma- uh, Matthew gives a lot of detail, and he fills whole, two whole chapters in, about this discourse, with this discourse of how Jesus, um, uh, Jesus talked to these four disciples. So let's go, if you would, and let's go to chapter 1, or chapter 24, verse 1. He says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, See, and not all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left one, here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, Jesus said this, and he actually was right criticized or even accused of uh, being one that was going to overthrow the Roman Empire because of this statement. Now, <clears throat> this is actually truly going to happen. In AD 70, Titus is going to come, and he is going to destroy the temple. He's going to cast, and, 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 but he's also referring to himself, right? And uh, he talks uh, in a different passage about how that uh, when this body of the temple is destroyed, it'll be raised in three days. And they're like, man, this temple's been, you know, 40 plus years in building. How are you going to do it in three days? But Jesus is here, I think, referring to what takes place in AD 70, because we'll see here in verse number three. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples, and Mark 13 tells us there were four, came on him privately saying, and they have three questions. Tell us. When shall these things be? Number two. What shall be the sign of thy coming? Number three. And of the end of the world. Jesus goes on, he says, and Jesus answered and said to him, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, what I think you'll find is interesting is that Jesus begins and he ends this with that saying. Let no man deceive you. This is incumbent on us as believers to study the Scriptures. To not just take my word for it or any man's word for it, but to know what your Bible says. To not be deceived about these things. And so we go on. He says this in verse number 5. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So there's going to be a lot of deception. People thinking, you know what? What Jesus described has come to pass. This is it. Now look at verse number 6. And ye shall hear of what? Wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now can someone tell me in verse number 6 what Jesus is actually saying? Read it carefully. what, What is he answering for the disciples? There were three questions. When? What shall be the sign? And the signs of the end of the world. Signs of your coming and signs of the end of the world. What is Jesus answering? Yes. Well, what would appear that he's saying? And ye shall hear of what? Wars, rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. Uh, there will be many that come and say, I'm the Christ, and shall deceive many. So, right, we're going to see some things. We're going to see, right, those coming purporting to be Christ, the Messiah. We're going to see wars and rumors of wars. And, and, uh, and you can say, well, this is it. This is it. There's more wars than ever before. Uh, this must be his, the sign of his coming. But Jesus actually says something in verse 6. He tells us the end is not yet. He says these are just birth pains. These are just things, right, a prelude to what is coming. Now look at verse number 7. For... Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences, earthquakes in divers places. 
All these are the beginning of sorrows. Verse 6, verse 7, those are not the signs of the end times. Those are the birth pangs. Those are things that are going to happen. And they probably will, as his return draws closer, happen more frequently. But you can't point to these things and say, that's it. Jesus is coming back right now. No, he says the end is near. The birth pangs have begun, right? And you dear ladies that have given birth, I have no clue what I'm talking about. Right? But I do remember watching my wife when we had Andrew, uh, you know, go through that process. What was that process? Yeah, you know what it was, especially with Andrew, right? I mean, a lot of pain. Anyway, no, the process was this idea, right? It begins very slowly. And, and even there are times where, you know, you think you're in, a, you're, you're in labor and you're not. What do they call that? Braxton Hickson's or something or something like that. All right. You can tell me I'm, I'm ready to be a doula or something. Here we go, all right? But here's the idea, right? These things are going to be happening. These are the birth pangs. But, but at the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Then if you look in verse number 8, it says, All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that endure, shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now has Jesus gotten into what we think of as the great tribulation yet? Verse 14, in this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then, then... Shall the what? Income. All right, now, now we've gotten to the... All right, or, so all of this is just going to be normal, right? Then we come to verse number 15, and this is why I wanted to bring you here. When ye therefore shall what? See the abomination of desolation spoken of by... And notice the name. So people be like, you know, they question the... Uh, the authenticity of the book of Daniel. Was it actually written by Daniel or by someone else? Jesus thought it was written by Daniel. At least chapter 9 was. All right. He says, Daniel, and he calls him what? The prophet. All right. He was a prophet, a man sent from God. All right. Stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Now, what I think Jesus is saying here, and you may disagree with this, he says, you know what? If you really want to understand, you've got to go back and read Daniel. In reading Daniel and reading what he has to say about this event, this is where you will gain understanding. So Jesus actually is pointing back to the book of Daniel. He's like, all right, disciples, I'll give you all the information you want, but really you need to go back and you need to reread what you already have. Now, <clears throat> The sign, what is the sign? The abomination of desolation. Now, there were, I think it was one, was it 167, the first, or 172, the first BC, the first time this happened, right? Antiochus Epiphanes came and he slaughtered a pig and, uh, and basically uh, set up an, uh, an idol. So this has already happened, like 200 or so years before Jesus is speaking these words. So he's saying there's another moment. And it's not just an abomination where they desecrate the temple. It's the abomination of desolation. And this is a whole other level of blasphemy where they not only desecrate the holy of holies, but they take and they set up an idol uh, in that place. 
So Jesus says, you know what? You need to go back and you need to read Daniel. What does Daniel have to say? And he goes on. He says, when you therefore shall what? See. Now what's interesting is how do you see something that only one person ever gets to see? You know what I mean by that? Why would I say that? Help me out. Because where does this abomination of desolation take place? In the temple. We're at in the temple. Andrew? I believe because of when you look at the, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the, the, the language. It talks about, if you look at the Hebrew, right, it's actually referring to the holy place, right? Well, it's been written to the Jews, right? To the Jewish people. Right. So he's writing to people that understand what he's describing, what he's talking about. Let me, can I come back to you on that? I have the answer. I just got to, I can't, I don't have the words in my notes. Is that okay? All right. So we come to this abomination of desolation. says, you shall see it. Well, can you see it if it's in the Holy of Holies? Who's the only person that goes there? So there's a way for them to be able to see it. All to be able to see it. In fact, he says there in verse number 15, he says what? When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. Um, and I think, Andrew, the key is, I'm sorry, I, I, it's right here in verse number 15. Stand in the what? The holy place, which is the holy of holies. Right? It's not just in the temple. It's in the holy place. And there, there is a Hebrew word for it, and I'm, I'm forgetting it. But that's, that's why I believe it's in the holy of holies. So if, if you have a different view, I'd, I'd love to hear it as well. Um, verse number 16, he says, Then let them which be in what? Judea. So now he's saying, okay, you're going to see it if you in Judea do what? Flee? Flee to the mountains. He says uh, 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 in verse number 17, Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. He's talking to who? Jew. He's saying if you see this, in, you in Judea, when you see this, flee. Now look at verse number 21. For then, then shall be what? Great tribulation. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. He's very specific about what he is referring to after this event takes place. Now, in fact, when you look at the Bible that the Jews that Jesus himself even would have used, it was the Septuagint. All the things that were written in Daniel that he's referring to were written 300 years prior to Jesus uttering these words. So it wasn't like, you know, uh, Jesus said these words and then someone went and, and changed Daniel so it would match what he said. No, it was already established, right, when they uh, did the Septuagint in the mid-200s, right? This is, right, what Daniel says. Now let's go back to our text. Let's go to Daniel. And let's look at, Jesus said we need to read and understand. So let's try to read and understand. I don't know how far I'll get today. I'm already a little behind. But Daniel chapter 9, we're going to go quickly. Verses 1 through 19 is Daniel's prayer. So Daniel is doing what? He's reading the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading his Bible, right, Scripture. 
And what is, uh, what is uh, he reading? Well, he's reading out of Jeremiah chapter 25, where Jeremiah says that, and if you would go there, uh, keep your finger there in Daniel chapter 9, go to Jeremiah 25. And can someone read verses 11 and 12 for me? All right. William, go ahead. I'm not going to go there just for the sake of time. So we go to back to Daniel chapter 9. The Bible says, Daniel, what? The first year in, I, Daniel, understood by books the numbers of the years, whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, all right, uh, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. He's taking Jeremiah literally, not figuratively, well, maybe it's 70, you know, no, 70 years. It's going to be 70 years. Daniel is at the end of his life here. Right, as he's coming here to Daniel chapter 9. And so he realizes, you know what, the 70 years are nearly up. Now, he goes on, and if you look, the Bible says he begins to pray. Now, isn't that interesting? Why is Daniel praying? If it's already set, if it's going to happen in 70 years, why does Daniel pray? It's already going to happen. I think it's the same reason Jesus, when he gives the model prayer, he's, we're to pray what? Thy kingdom come. Why am I praying for His kingdom to come? Is the kingdom of Jesus Christ going to come whether I pray or not? So why pray? I think it's God wanting us to be a part of what He's doing. right? Making us a part of what He's doing. right? Setting our minds and our hearts to understand, you know what, this is God's will. I'm praying for His will to be done. right? And I'm praying to align my will with His will and understanding that. And so He begins to pray. Praying, of course, in this way, God enlisting us in what he is doing. Verse 5, what does he pray? He says, we have sinned. We have sinned. There are two men in the Bible that there's no sin described in their lives. Not that they weren't sinners, they were, but Joseph and Daniel. And here Daniel says, we have sinned, I have sinned. And he confesses the sin of the people. Verses 6 through 11, we see that for Israel, their national behavior determined their destiny. They went against the law of God, and because of that, God judged them. And, uh, and Daniel's recognizing that. In verses 17 through 19, I want you to notice something about Daniel's prayer. Boy, Daniel's really praying, it would appear. In verse 17, he says, Now therefore, O O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations. And the city which is called by thy name, for we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. And verse 19, I think, is marvelous. Notice the tempo of his prayer. It seems to pick up. Look at the, how many different words, action words, right? Verbs that are being used here. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thy own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Now, Daniel's praying. Then what happens in verse number 20? He gets tapped on the shoulder, figuratively speaking. See it? And whilst I was speaking and praying, 
and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication for the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision, vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. We see Daniel, right? Interrupted in his prayer by Gabriel. Does anybody know the three archangels in the Bible? Gabriel, that's one of them. Michael, that's another. Who's the third? Lucifer, right? Okay. All right. Michael is a warrior. You always see him fighting God's battles, right? A, a, a warrior. Gabriel, it would appear every time we see Gabriel in the scripture, he is bringing news or a message about who? Who do you think? The Messiah, right? Jesus, right? Something to do with his ministry, with his life. He was the one, right, that appeared to Mary, right? Now he is here appearing to Daniel. Now, when is Daniel praying? During the time of the evening oblation. What is the evening oblation? What does that even have to mean? The evening oblation was, right, the evening sacrifice at the temple. Now, is Daniel anywhere near the temple? But yet, in his mind, right, he is viewing his religious walk with God so seriously, in my opinion, right, he's actually keeping even the times that they observed during the temple, even though he's not there and hasn't been there many, many years. And even at this point, there isn't a temple even to go to. But he's there at the evening oblation praying. Notice what title is used for Daniel. Look at verse number 23. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth. Boy, could you imagine being Gabriel? Man, just hearing this. And I came to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Anybody else know who is beloved? Who's, okay, so Daniel's the beloved in the Old Testament. Who's the beloved in the New Testament? What are both men given? Right, the unveiling. Both men are given, right? Uh, uh, there's another term used for people that are given, right, a view into the future by God, and that's the term friend. In Genesis chapter 18, God calls Abraham his what? His friend. What does he tell Abraham? He tells him what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 19. What happens in Genesis chapter 19? He says, I'm, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember they have this debate. Should I tell him? <laughs> And yet as a friend, Jesus, as he comes, I think, to John chapter, is it chapter 14, chapter 15? Jesus calls his disciples what? Friends. And in calling them friends, what does he do next? He gives them, right, details about the future. But there's a whole nother, it seems like a whole nother level when you're called beloved, right? You're actually given these visions, uh, uh, the, the unveiling, right? Apocalyptic visions, all right? So, so now we have Daniel, we have his prayer. We have Daniel's gift. Now let's look at Daniel's vision. And we're not going to finish this tonight. We'll come back to it next week. Number one, I want us to understand the scope of his vision. It starts in verse number 24. Can someone tell me the scope? What I mean, who is the vision for? What's the boundaries of the vision? Who's the audience? Who is, who is being described there in chapter 24? Someone read it. Uh, read chapter, uh, verse 24, not chapter 24. Daniel, verse 24. Sorry. 924. I'm sorry, I've been saying chapter 24. Verse 24. I was called old age. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. 
reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy into the Okay. So, what's the boundary? What's the scope? What's the context? Who is the vision given concerning? What's that? Thy people and what? Thy holy city. Who is thy people? Who's Daniel's people? The Jewish people. What is the holy city? Chicago? No, Jerusalem, right? All right. So he says, okay, 70 weeks, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. 70 weeks. Now the word week there, don't let that throw you, it's just 70 sevens. 70 groups of seven. And we'll talk about how that is. Let's look, number two, there are six things that show us that when the end of the 70th week has arrived. All right? You can find them there in verse number 24. The first thing is to finish the transgression, to make an end of what? Sins. To make what? Reconciliation for iniquity. You could say that those three things could possibly have been completed when Christ finished His work on the cross. Now let's look at the next three. And to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the what? Vision and prophecy. And the sixth thing, and to anoint the most holy. These six things, and I don't have time tonight to go into it. These six things, you should look at it, really say, okay, at the end of the 77s, the 70 periods of seven, whatever those sevens are, we'll talk about that here in a minute, Right? These six things are done. Now, can I ask you a question? Are these done? Is there, has, has, has there been everlasting righteousness brought to the earth? Is, is it everlasting righteousness to the earth, though? All right. Has the vision and prophecy been sealed up? Has the, what, the anointing of the Most Holy taken place? Now some will say, yes, this was all finished in Christ, the seven years, three and a half with John the Baptist, three and a half with Jesus Christ. The challenge with that is that these seven are finished. The problem is the first three, yes, you could say. He's made an end of sin, right? He's made, and, and because what is, what is our hope? Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, are, we hope for what? We hope for righteousness. Galatians 5.5. 5. Right? So there's not everlasting righteousness here on this earth. Right? So all six things aren't done. Let's go on. We see, what is this week, this seventh? It's the Greek word, or, or the Hebrew word, Shabuim. And it actually means just groups of seven. I'm not going to take the time, but you could go through these. There are, uh, in the scriptures, there's a group of seven days called a literal week, what we know of as a week. But there's also a feast of weeks. How many weeks do you guess are in a feast of weeks? Seven, seven, all right? There's a, uh, 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 also called the week of weeks, seven weeks. Uh, there are months. It was often, you can find this in Exodus 12, 2 or Leviticus 23, 24. Uh, from Nishan to Tishri was a week of months, so seven months. And then we see a week of years. There was the sabbatical years for the land. Every seven years, right, the Jews were supposed to let the land rest. There was a Sabbath for the land. Does anybody know why they actually went into captivity for 70 years? Guess how many, how many, how many Sabbath years they missed? 
70. So God's like, okay, you didn't let the land rest for 70 years, 70 discrete years. So we're going to go ahead and let the land rest for 70 years while you're in Babylon. Uh, we, we see it also described, right, as a, a week of years. And this is what we applied to Daniel chapter 9. It's a, right, 77, 70 weeks of, uh, right, seven-year periods. Now, <clears throat> Um, I'm going I'm to finish with this, actually, because I think it's uh, with the time. We're going to actually look at, okay, I'm going to take two minutes, and then we'll come back to it. When we look at the B, so we have the scope in the audience. It's thy people upon thy holy city, right? There are six things that are done at the end of the 77s, and it is a 70, what we believe, seven groups of years. So let's look, if you would, at verse number 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth to the commandment, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. What I love about it is there's a very exact <laughs> description here. Okay, so Daniel, the first 69 weeks, 7 plus 62. You say, Pastor, why do they describe it that way? Why 7 plus 62? I don't know. And the best I can find is nobody else knows either. All right. But 7 plus 62, you math wizards. David, you're in school now. What is it? 69. All right. So let's talk about the trigger. What's the trigger? What triggers this 69 weeks? What's that? Yeah, look at it, verse 25. From the going forth of the commandment to do what? All right. And look, look later on. <clears throat> he says specifically what will be built. The command to build what? Look at the last part of verse 25. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. There's actually, when you study, there are four decrees to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. The first decree was by Cyrus in 537. The second degree was by Darius. The third degree was by Ar the first Artaxerxes in 4 458. And those three degrees are to go, decrees rather, are to go and rebuild the temple. Now, does anybody know what happened with the temple rebuild? They couldn't. They struggled. They were under attack. The fourth decree found in Nehemiah chapter 2 is a decree to go build what? The walls, the city, established government, right? And you could actually, it's interesting, there's only one degree to rebuild the city. Now, there are many, there are different views on this. Uh, we can go back and we can actually look at this. Um, there's a writer, and um, my, my brain just went blank. Uh, sorry, let me look it up real quick. Um, he was a part of Scotland Yard, and, uh, and uh, you got to be careful. But he actually went and he actually studied it. It was back in 1895. Um, and he actually studied the dates to go and look and say, can we determine what the date was? And when we actually look at Nehemiah, we are given the date. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2. When did the decree go out? And I'm going to finish with this and we'll, we'll come back to it next week. So we're going to do a little hunt. Find the date. What's the date that the decree went out? I'll give you a little hint. It's in Nehemiah. 
Ah, okay, where do you find that, Brother Zach? All right, verse 1. And in the month, came to pass in the month what? Nisan, the 20th year of our Xerxes the king, that wine was before me, or him. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Now, only thing, and, and many, many writers believe when he says Nisan, you believe it to be the first day. He doesn't give an actual date here. But we know the year and we know the month. Knowing the year and knowing the month, we know that, right, Nehemiah is there before the king. What does Nehemiah receive from the king in chapter 2? The commandment to go and build. I want to show you next week, God willing, that I think we can figure out the actual date that Jesus rode triumphantly into the city. And we can actually see that there are 69 weeks or 400 and, right? Not 90, 483, right? Years. Even almost down to the day, right, between those two events. So you have to come back next week and find that out. Here's what I'll challenge you to do. Let me, let me find that writer. And, and you've got to be careful, all right? He's just a man. Um, and there's, some, there, there's different views. We're dispensational in our view, and I know others aren't, all right? So I'll acknowledge that. Uh, bear with me just a second. Sorry. Here we go. Uh, wrote it down here. And I've read, I've read, oh, there it is. It's called uh, Sir Robert Anderson, his book, The Coming Prince, written in 1894. Um, you can find it online. There's a PDF. It is a little bit of a challenge to read uh, just because it's a little bit dense. Uh, he wrote like six different books. Um, but, uh, and then there's some other writers that have come along and made slight changes to his calculations. But I hope to show you next week that, you know, we can be confident in our Bible. And to your point, Sister Teresa, here's what you need to do. Study it. Come to believe what you, right, what you know. And, uh, and then be honest about the things you don't know. That's okay, too. <laughs> so, all right. So if you have questions, let's do this. Time, time for prayer. If you have questions, please write them down or text them to me. Uh, Sister Liz, i got two more of your questions to be asked. I'm sorry I didn't get to all three of them tonight, but uh, we'll get to them. If you have additional questions, I'd love to do my best to try to answer them. All right.